It's good to be together with you today. If you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke, joyful to be in this season as a church, to be teaching and preaching through Luke's Gospel. What a joy. Um, We're in chapter 1, church. Today we move into verses 57 through 66 as we consider the testimony of Zechariah part 2. Thankful for this testimony and its ministry to us and the Holy Spirit's work in us today as we study God's good word. Let's jump right in with verse 57. Luke chapter 1 verse 57. Luke continues, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. This is truly a wondrous moment for the life of this family and community. Why? Because as we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 7, these, this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And yet, this faithful couple continued to pray. To pray for a child. And they prayed for a lifetime. Even late in their life. It was God's will at this time to ordain, to open her womb, and to bring forth a child for God's sovereign purposes. The testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth giving birth to a son is the fulfillment of God's promise that he gave through the angel Gabriel and to Zechariah, we saw that in verse 13 through 14, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Church, we are well served to slow and consider our prayer life again. How many things are you faithful to pray for? Not just once, uh, not just for a week, not just many times, dozen times, but even for a lifetime. Knowing well that it might not be God's will to grant you what you ask for, but also knowing that God is able to do anything that is in line with his good and perfect will. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Christian, do you trust that God hears your prayers? You should. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Church, God hears our prayers. He knows us. He hears us. He loves us. And this is important that you see God as faithful in this, as present, that he will hear and answer our prayer. We need to always remember that prayer is answered in God's time and in his way and not ours, and this is good. The testimony of Zachariah and Elizabeth is one of the best examples in all of Holy Scripture of this practice of patient and enduring prayer. If God's response to your prayers is not fast enough for you, we need to stop and remember and be okay with the fact that it is going to happen when and if God wants it to. God will accomplish His perfect and holy will every time and in all things. Uh, Scripture is clear time and time again that God's promises are always fulfilled. Consider a few of these passages with me. Joshua 21, 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 1 Kings 8, 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, 
And will he not fulfill it? Yes and yes. The fact that God fulfills all of his promises and cannot lie is a wonderful reality that should fill our hearts with all the more confidence in our Lord in the midst of the things that we're going through. This is the point of Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let this be an attribute of the Lord that truly causes us to well up with worship for our great God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Amen. What a great thing. The birth of John. To an elderly woman that was barren her entire life. What an amazing act of God to fulfill his promise on this family. Continue with me, church. Verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. There's a uniqueness to the details given here. A quick read of this could reveal that all of those in their lives, their neighbors, their family, they came to show up and show their support to them. Just as secular families would do at the birth of a child into the family. But Luke gives us a detail here that points to something more about this group of people. He says they rejoiced with her. The emphasis here is that they are rejoicing in the Lord. They're praising God. So this is not something that unbelievers do. Unbelievers don't praise the Lord. They don't rejoice and give credit to God, not in their sin. So this gathering is to be understood as neighbors and family who are full of faith with them in the one true God. It's a testimony of people of God rejoicing in God for what he has done in this family. And this is a fulfillment also of what the angel of the Lord said would happen. Back to verse 14 and 15. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Church, this is a simple but profound reminder of the unique way that we, the church, the redeemed, experience life together in the body of Christ, in our fellowship, our practice of the one another's, our corporate worship of the Lord. It is our koinonia. Right? That's a big Greek word for fellowship. Describes and conveys a unique and special bond between the beloved of Christ, an extra special connection among God's family. It's a partnership. It's more than a casual friendship or work relationship or neighbor relationship. It's another level of connection and relationship in the Lord. For those of us who belong to Christ, it is a way of living that is fueled by His Word and the Spirit of God. Paul speaks of this in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In Ephesians 4, 1-7, Paul says, To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Church, what this means is that we are to truly make every effort to love and serve and pray for and walk together in unity 
that the Lord has given us in his blood. The Christian life is not about you, as we often make it. How many of your days, how many of your, uh, of your Sundays are you rolling into church or, or gathering with others or, or thinking about the church or the work of the Lord and, and among his people and, and, and you're full of criticism? You're full of thinking about what is this going to mean for you? How is it affecting you? Christian life is not about you. Our living in Christ is about others. Christ in us means that I am satisfied, I am complete, I am empowered, I am filled with Him. Therefore, we who belong to Christ are poised, are positioned, are launched to be a blessing to others. The Christian life is about our obedience to God and service to others. It's not being satisfied in the Lord and then I'm looking for all the different and critical ways that it continues to minister to me, serve me, be the way I want it to be. No, that those fleshly ways that we're constantly not satisfied, the Lord is to fill those voids. We are to be complete in Him so that I'm readied to be a blessing to others, to serve, to love, to care for, to look out for each other. Therefore, my life in the church, my life in the body of Christ is not about what I'm getting out of it. It's about what I'm getting to do for those around me. And so whatever part of a season or a stretch or a relationship that you're caught up in lately where you're just embittered, you can't kind of stop thinking about how it's not the way you want it to be, and it's to, to, to make war with that, to, to slay that, to put that away so that, that I can be a blessing, that, that I would turn to Christ and let Him fill that in me to be complete in Him. To practice unity, to practice serving others. This is how we're set up to do what Paul calls us to do in Romans 12, 15, when he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So sometimes we're guilty of showing up to someone's doorstep and we're, we're there to minister to them, we're there to bring them a meal, and yet I can't stop talking about me what I'm going through and is what the, what the Lord's doing in me, readying me to minister to my brother or sister wherever they're at. If they're weeping, to weep with them. If they're rejoicing, to rejoice with them. Whether our brother or sister's in pain and hardship, we love them, we draw near, we weep with them, we care for them. When a brother or sister is experiencing victory or success or deliverance, we celebrate with them what the Lord is doing in their lives. We rejoice with them. Right? Their struggle is our struggle. Their win is our win. I'm thinking a lot less as an individual. I'm thinking a lot less just about me and my family. And I'm thinking about our family, the body of the Lord. Hear it again, verse 58. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. What a moment for God's faithful to gather and rejoice in Him together. It brings to mind Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His, and we are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. May we be a people of the Lord who, who love to gather in true koinonia, genuine fellowship, deep 
connection in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord together. Luke continues in 59, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. The act of circumcision is the removal of the foreskin or extra skin of the male genitalia. While it has some cosmetic and health benefits to fight infection and disease, which is why most of us still have it done to our male children today, it was ordained and purposed by the Lord in this day in the Old Covenant to be a marker of those families who belonged to the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is also known as the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and thus the marker of Israel's national identity belonging to the Lord. Look with me at the text where we hear God make this covenant with Abraham that includes his prescription to include the unique practice of circumcision as a sign thereof. Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourns, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Continuing in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days Old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's important, church, that we understand that male circumcision was the physical, natural sign of the temporary old covenant that God made with his chosen people of Israel. It's important, church, that we understand that this sign and condition was only a covenantal reality and requirement under the Old Covenant, and therefore is no longer a requirement under the New Covenant that we now live in under Christ. Paul is clear to say this in Galatians 5.6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So what we need here in what we read here in Luke 1.59 is fitting that John is both named and circumcised on the eighth day as they, this family, is still under the old covenant. Why? Christ has not yet been born. He's about to be. And the new covenant is not yet established. But praise God for his plan, church, for his purpose of the old covenant 
that would outline the way God's people were to act and would point to the promised Redeemer who is to bring about the new covenant that we're now under. So even in this small and what seems like at times passing detail that we read here in verse 59, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. It is important, church, that we see these details are a continual reminder to us of the faithfulness of God to carry out His perfect plan. In this, may each of us be reminded, be emboldened by the testimony of God's faithfulness to do all that He has said to us to do. He is truly worthy of all of our trust and obedience. May it be so. Continuing in verse 59, And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. What we're given here is insight into a conversation at this special gathering on this eighth day for John's circumcision and naming the family who are gathered there. The conversation uh, includes people's reasoning that Zachariah and Elizabeth would name the son after his father. But Elizabeth chimes in. She's near and says, no, he's to be named John. She knows this because Zechariah has communicated to her clearly what the angel of the Lord said through the different means he used, writing on a tablet and such. So he's unable to speak in this time. If you remember in Luke 1.13, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now again, mentioned this to you before, it's worth repeating. Traditionally, the authority is given to the father to name the child. This goes all the way back to the headship role given to Adam in creation to name all the animals of creation and beyond. Adam was even the one to name his wife Eve. That said, we also see God lay claim to his ultimate authority over the things assigned to a person's name and even to change the name of a certain person for God's good purposes, if he so wills to do it. Right? The authority given to man, God outranks it. So he can pull rank anytime he wants and say, no, I got this one. Zechariah is charged by the word of the Lord through the angel to be sure that the son that he's waited for a lifetime to have is not named by the father or in the heritage of the father, but is given the name John. Now after hearing from Elizabeth that they're naming him John, the gathering of faithful around do what many of us would do in the breakings of tradition, and they kind of double down as, hey, none of your relatives are Named by that. It doesn't make sense. Right? It doesn't add up in their minds. So they turn to the head of the home, to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah can't speak. Right? If you remember, um, he was disciplined. So it says, They made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote that his name is John. And they wondered. They marveled. Why? Because of Zechariah's obedience, Elizabeth's obedience to God. I mean, this is a big moment. They've waited their whole lives for this baby, and they're not getting to name him. The Lord is. How often, church, are we in our flesh tempted to do what we want to do, or what others want us to do, instead of what the Lord has made clear that we are to do? Well, it's not our aim, I think, as the faithful, to do this. While we likely do not think we do this very often, I have found that it is something I think we struggle with in our flesh more than we realize we do. Especially about things that either we are very passionate about, 
or things that we perceive as just very trivial. But church, it is our obedience and our faithfulness to the things of God that truly set us apart as belonging to Him and not to anything else. If you remember, John makes this so explicitly clear in his first letter, the Apostle John, 1 John 2, 3-6. through By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Church, we cannot just claim to belong to God. No, God's word is clear to teach us that our talking, our prioritizing, our living will be marked in Christ by humble obedience to God's word and command. So I ask you, Christian, are you fighting your flesh to walk in genuine obedience to God's will and word for you? Heeding godly counsel, heeding godly instruction, to not reason with it, not fight it, not turn to what you want to do. Zechariah and Elizabeth stood fast in honoring the word of the Lord and his clear command to name their lifelong anticipated son. This is the moment they've waited for. To name him John and not give him a name that they wanted to from their family heritage. This is a simple but great testimony of their faith at work. And it is why their family, we read, marveled at this. Right? How quickly do we read through passages like this sometimes and we, we miss these details. And yet God doesn't waste a word in his word. Praise God. Their obedience reveals the one to whom they truly belong. The one to whom they are truly abiding in. John makes this point as well, a couple chapters later in his first letter, 1 John 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. How does the true Christian obey God's commands and not live for their own reasoning, their own emotions, their own flesh? The Spirit of God that abides in us. Praise God for this, the power of the Spirit. We obey because we are redeemed. We're given a new life in Christ, a new heart for God. The Spirit comes on board and it motivates us in a new way that our flesh never did when enslaved in sin. The point here is the evidence of our new birth in Christ and abiding in God, the evidence of that, the display of that is our obedience to Him. Our ongoing obedience is the evidence of the Spirit within. When God regenerates your heart and gives you saving faith, your longings change, your goals change. You increasingly, over time, mature in the things of the Lord. Your desire is to please the Lord more and more. You want Him to rule over you. You want to live your days for His priorities given to you. You want His authority over you and and his commands, they're not a burden to you, growingly so. So I ask you again, church, in what ways of your life are you reasoning unto something that is in direct disobedience to God's clear word? Christian, you must address those areas to confess your sin in this your disobedience, and to turn to honor the Lord. Sometimes there's nothing sweeter than to have really struggled with something over a length of time, have the Spirit really convict you, and out of nowhere you pull aside with someone who's been praying for you or knows your struggle and just say, without any, any buts, without any explanation, I've been wrong in this. 
and I'm ready to do what's right. Will you pray for me in that? I'm thankful for God's work in me. I just leave it there. And to rejoice in his work and to walk in his power under whatever that is. I found myself saying to a number of, er of different uh, of people in very different but hard circumstances lately in counseling, brothers and sisters in the Lord, something continues to find its way out of my mouth. It's a similar point of counsel. That the way that they're deeply struggling in sin or in life is a direct result of trying to reason their way through it. They're listening too much to themselves, to their feelings, to others, more than listening to and trusting in God's clear word for them on the matter. What, what if we would just sl simply slow down, look to the clear word of the Lord, and do that? And then sometimes we reason, well, but then this, or no, 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 no. Something we say often, do the right thing, do the righteous thing, and trust the results to the Lord. Right? Let's get out of the business of reasoning our way in and around it. And just do the good thing the Lord's calling us to do. To not be thinking about what other people are doing or not. You, for you. What is it? And let's do it. The good news of this point of contention is that although we make it wildly complicated and we work ourselves into just a spider web of emotion and confusion and, and the fix is simple. Stop thinking, stop speaking, stop acting in the way that is indirect disobedience to God's word and start by faith to simply obey God and do what it says to do and don't do what it says to not do. This is a wonderful gift of the Lord. His holy written word and the ongoing active work of the Spirit in us. And then the church around us to hold us accountable and point us to these things. What a great gift of God. Amen? May it be so in our lives. Look with me at verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. What did he speak? Blessing God. Notice God's timing for releasing Zechariah's tongue to allow him to speak again. He was bound to not speak during the, during the entire duration of his wife's pregnancy. Zechariah doubted the word of the Lord that his barren and old wife would conceive and give birth to a son. And so God disciplined him for his lack of faith by removing his ability to speak. Now, what the Lord said would happen, happened. What do I mean? She conceived, carried a, a son to full term, and gave birth to him. This most amazing miracle that we started today's sermon celebrating. Verse 57 has happened. The Lord's word has proven once again to be true. Zechariah has witnessed his wife grow with child and now successfully give birth to their son. The Lord has given him a son. Zechariah is rightly chastised, disciplined for his lack of faith. And, and so see with me that he is benefited by this discipline. How do we know he was benefited by it? Because of the testimony of his praise with the first words he gets to speak. Right? His words are not fixed on what could be the idol of his heart. His son. 
They're not for his son. They're not for his love for his wife. You did a great job, honey. No, his words, his first words are unto the Lord. He gives ultimate credit and praise to God. For God is the one who did this amazing and miraculous thing. Luke says that Zechariah spoke and blessed God. How do we do this? How do we bless God? Well, Pastor Steve spoke of this important practice as he preached recently in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we slow to consider those words, bless God, like it just, it seems odd when you know who God is and who we are, right? How, how do we bless the one who possesses all things? How do we who are dependent bless the one who is independent? How do we who are lacking show favor and blessing to the one who lacks nothing? Paul states this so well in Romans 11, 33-36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. How do I give a gift to the one who has everything? How do I I say it encouraging? I, I got nothing. I got nothing. He has it all. Right? All of it's from him, through him, to him. So what do I do? Paul says it well. To him be glory forever. We praise him. We bless God by glorifying God, by singing of his glory, by praising his holy name. Pastor Steve quoted the late Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon. We can bless God by praising him, by extolling him, by desiring all honor for him, ascribing all good to him, magnifying and lauding his holy name. We bless God, and I started to think about the different ways that Scripture counsels us, commands us to do that, and I, and I remembered the catechism. Hopefully, the catechism is something of memory for all of us. God's good truths that we've studied and grown to understand the teaching of Holy Scripture. And I remembered the answers that come from question 43. How should we love God? It's really the same answer to how do we bless God? We love God. We bless God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. We do this by trusting in Jesus, by enjoying Him, treasuring Him, growing in our knowledge of Him, believing His words, obeying His commands, and showing and telling the world how great he is. Word of Truth Catechism, question 43. We bless God in how we steward and respond to the ordained setbacks, trials, hardships, the discipline of the Lord. How we respond to that is how we bless God. See with me that this is the testimony of Zechariah. God stopped his mouth for nine months of his life during one of the most special and meaningful moments of his life. Right? Think about the ways that a wife needs a husband in the cooking of a child and the workings of the bodies and sickness and tiredness and achiness. Right? In this time, in this special moment, He's sidelined to not be able to communicate with his mouth, his words of encouragement, his words of reorientation to the Lord. He had to find other ways to do that. A regular reminder of his disobedience, of his lack of faith, was present all through this season. His flesh could have become bitter for not being able to speak 
in this most precious time. You know, Elizabeth's flesh could have become bitter. I think sometimes we're watching a beloved go through a hard time and and we miss the opportunity to pray for them for the Lord to make the most of that because we're disappointed in what we're missing out from them and how they're letting us down. Let's turn that to prayer. Let's turn that church to praying for one another that, that they would not waste this moment, but steward it well. He didn't go to bitterness. Instead, he grew in faith. And he was allowed to speak again. And what did he do with those first words? He sang out praise to God. Blessed. Blessed the Lord. For many of us, like with Zechariah, the Lord God has ordained hardships and setbacks that we are to go through. Things, things that God, when we see it rightly, will surgically use in our lives to improve us, to grow us to mature us, to strengthen us, to sharpen us, to refine us, to trust in Him all the more, to deepen our love and faith in Him above all else. It, it is a sweet thing to hear the testimony of the beloved in the midst or in the aftermath of a great hardship and for them to genuinely say, God's using this in awesome ways in my life. It's one of the highlights of my whole life with my father. My mother loved the Lord, was taken by God's sovereignty after eight years of battling Alzheimer's and taken to glory at the young age of 60. My dad, healthy as a horse, went on to live for more than a decade longer. And in the midst of that season, they were so close in their marriage. He said, son, I, I think the Lord ordained to take your mom when he did to get more of my attention. And I was joyful because Matt and I, Michelle, got to see our father lean into the Lord in a way we had never seen him do that in that season. Growing in his theology, growing in his love for the word, using his days more for kingdom things than temporary things. Christian, how are you responding to the setbacks, to the disciplines, to the hardships of life? Don't miss your opportunity to respond with growing faith, dependence on God, and to not respond in your flesh. May we, like Zechariah, respond with faith, obedience, and praise for our good God. Verse 65, 66, the fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And, and all who heard them laid them upon their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. The friends and family who gathered with Zechariah and Elizabeth once again witnessed yet another miracle. Zechariah is speaking. The Lord has loosed his tongue. Right? Not, not just... The elderly and once barren Elizabeth successfully gave birth to a son, an amazing miracle in itself. But Zachariah has been given his voice back by the Lord. And they hear him speak, right? And he speaks the praise of the Lord. Luke testifies that fear came on, the net, on that gathering. This fear is not a run and hide thing. It's a response of reverence and awe for God. The result of witnessing yet another one of his amazing, miraculous works. Luke then says that all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. So when Luke says all these things, he's really speaking of the, 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 the accumulation of all that has transpired in this family in these recent months. And then when we stop to kind of consider the magnitude of it all, we can understand why this became the talk of the region. Just remember with me for a moment, church, God breaks 400 years of silence to bring a word of the Lord through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah. The first word of the Lord any of God's people have heard in 400 years. Generations have come and gone. 
And the Lord speaks and makes promise. A faithful priest with a faithful wife, both late in years, without a son, without a child, God has ordained her to be barren. This family's prayed for a lifetime for a son. All this community has prayed with them. They know their burden. They know their desires. And the word of the Lord is that they will have a child. God will work a wondrous miracle and open Elizabeth's womb to be pregnant. Not only will she have a son, but a son who will be great before the Lord. Remember verse 15 and 17. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Then Elizabeth successfully carries her child to full term, a feat within itself. And a successful birth happens despite her very old age. She survives it, the child survives it, to bring to a great crescendo all these things. God miraculously unstops Zechariah's mouth, allowing him to speak again. And they've witnessed all this, and they marvel. The fear of the Lord is upon them. Amazing. And Luke tells us that all who heard, heard them, laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? The hand of the Lord is upon him. As the word of God's amazing work in this family moved about the region, the growing and popular questions started to be asked, what then will this child be? I am so excited to continue our study of Luke's gospel and to answer that question because the testimony of John, John the Baptist, as we'll come to know him, is one of my favorite in all of Holy Scripture. For the hand of the Lord was truly upon him. May the hand of the Lord be at work in us, church, we who belong to Jesus Christ, in such a way that the people in our path are also astounded. Not at you, not at me, but at the work of the Lord. That we would fulfill Jesus' command on us, church, given in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Whatever it is you are in the middle of, how are you stewarding that in such a way to honor and obey the Lord, to walk by faith and not by reasoning or sight, by which people see the hand of the Lord at work. They see that faithfulness, they see God's work, and they praise Him. Now we're not going to get to John's testimony of his life and ministry until chapter 3. First, we're going to dive into Zechariah's prophecy to conclude chapter 1. And then we'll spend all of chapter 2 witnessing and working through the amazing birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Christmas is going to come a little early this year, church. All praise be to God for His holy work of grace to send His only Son to take on flesh so that we could live without sin and die so that, I'm sorry, so that he could live without sin and die in our place. We who are wretched and full of sin and deserving of his wrath, that he would die in our place so we could be forgiven and set free. If you've entered this place today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that the Lord in his providence is opening your dead heart, opening your ears to hear the gospel, not just the words and the news, but that it becomes good news to you and you are astounded. The holy God would do such a thing to pay the price of your sin that you are ready to die to yourself and trust your life to him and live for his glory the rest of your days. I pray this is God's holy work in you this day, if not very soon. Every man, woman, and child is utterly desperate for Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. May it be God's goodwill for us to see the amazing grace of God to send His Son to save many. We're going to close our service this morning singing In Christ Alone.
The doctrine of salvation in Christ alone can be summarized like this. Solus Christus, because of, God's, because of Christ's work alone we are saved, emphasizes that only through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone can anyone be saved. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus' sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation with the Holy Father. No human merit or good deeds are sufficient to satisfy the righteous justice of God's wrath due sinners. Rather, salvation is solely based on the passive and active obedience of Jesus alone, whose atoning death on the cross is the only sufficient substitute for those sinners that he came to save. For all who die to self and trust in him, in Christ alone, he is the source of our justification from our sin and our right standing with God. This is the good news of Jesus. May it well up in your soul this morning unto high praise. Turn to Jesus alone. Church, rest in Jesus alone. Hope in Jesus alone. Fix your eyes on Jesus alone and draw near to him. May our testimony be Christ and Christ alone. Pray with me and we'll sing. Father, we thank you for this day that you've ordained to give us to spend time in this part of your holy word. Lord, what a blessing it is that you caused Luke to gather these testimonies and, and to write them down, that we could study them so many years later, to know these, these holy words that you've ordained, to be moved by them, to be convicted by them, to be, to be helped by them so that you would be glorified, so that you would be praised. Oh Lord, do your work in us, so it's not about us. Do your work in us to help us grow and mature and be refined. Let us not waste our discipline, our hardships, our setbacks, but steward them well under the glory of the Lord, coming out of it, Lord, to the, to the praise of the Lord. God, you are doing an amazing thing. We see it unfolding in time, in the covenant you made with Abraham, the deliverance of the announcer of Christ, John, all these things, you are working perfectly with all of your elect in mind to bring us to salvation, to feast at your holy table forevermore as we worship you. We thank you for Christ, Christ alone. Hear us now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.